Via Hemp, let's talk about it. Via Hemp offers THC and non-TH craft cannabis experiences. Now, I love a non-THC option when it comes to your overall wellness. I'm talking sleep aid, maybe anxiety if you have that. Well, that's where Via comes into play. And did you know even a non-THC option if you're doing fertility or IVF can be helpful? Look into that. Well, Via is incredible. You got to be 21 plus. You can get 15% off with my exclusive code TSFS when you go to viahemp, V-I-I-A, hemp.com. They have all kinds of lifestyle products. And like I said, the best part is with the THC or without, so you don't have the buzzy buzzy. Don't you love my cannabis lingo? I mean, the buzzy buzzy. Anyway, I'm unique. What can I say? Look, order now. You're going to love Via Hemp. Use the code TSFS to receive 15% off and a one-time free sample of their award-winning gummies, 21 plus. That's viahemp.com and use the code TSFS at checkout. Support the show. Tell them I sent you and enhance your everyday life with Via Hemp. Do you enjoy playing relaxing puzzle games on your phone? I do. It's even better when they're free and you can collect prizes along the way. Welcome to Two Dots. I have been playing Two Dots to relax my mind, unwind, and there's something very methodical about it. The premise of the game is you connect dots horizontally, vertically, but never diagonally. And you head from level to level. And as I mentioned, you do collect points along the way if you are into that. More than 5,000 puzzles to keep you engaged and relaxed after a very long day, uniquely designed challenges challenges, game modes, and levels to choose from based on what adventure you are into. And by the way, you can download it for free right now on your Android phone or iOS. I also like the color template of this game. It's very, it's giving me very like pastel-y vibes. So yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it too. If you are ready to kick back and unwind, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS and start connecting. Summer is almost here. Don't you want to go to the beach with thicker, gorgeous, beautiful locks and everyone goes, hey, I love your hair. And you go, neutrophil, baby. (laughs) You know, something along that lines. Well, take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering my listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and you enter the promo code TSFS. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. I recommend it. I've been taking Nutrafol for years. It's how I got my hair back thicker and not falling out in chunks after I had KJ. Now it's your turn. Nutrafol has been on with me for years, and that's because you all continue to buy, and it really works. I love it. Now it's your turn to love it too. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com with the promo code T-S-F-S. That's Nutrafol.com with the promo code T-S-F-S. All right, today's podcast is brought to you by David Rubin. David Uh Rubin has been a family lawyer for almost 30 years who specializes in narcissists and difficult divorces. If you are dealing with either, look, Natasha has said it. She wishes that she'd met David years ago. Don't wait. Get your free consultation by going to mdlaws.com. All right, Natasha. Um... Special guest. Actually, this is, I was so fascinated when I heard about Jill Teets, who lives in Boston. She runs Sober Powered Media, and it really originated from Jill's sobriety journey, and now she has really a mental health podcast network. So I commend her for 
first getting sober and second running your own podcast network is so much work. So (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine it's hard enough to like run one podcast show. And like Natasha and I have gone back and forth about like branching off and doing our own show. And I'm like, I don't even know if I have the bandwidth to have two shows. You have like eight or something, you know, you're like doing a whole network. Yeah. It's a lot of shows. Um, (laughs) Yep. You described it pretty accurately it's it's a lot of shows it's a lot of stress it's a lot of people it's a lot of emails well look we're thrilled to have you on and tell your story because obviously natasha's been super open about her sobriety journey um and you know she kind of will recap that but jill what i like to not only about you taking your sobriety journey and turning it into a network turning it into you know kind of like a group therapy that people will will talk about that the services that you offer but i think too just like you kind of got sober in an unconventional way, not the traditional AA way, which most, which is what most people do. So Natasha, jump into, but I don't know. I kind of thought, Jill, maybe you could start from the beginning with us and tell us like when you started drinking and how you got sober. Yeah. So I also started drinking really late. Most people start in high school. I did not drink at all in high school. I didn't have my first drink until I was 18. And that was because I was bullied throughout all of school. So I just didn't have the opportunity. Um, It wasn't like I probably would have had a drink if I had the opportunity to have one. But looking back, it's kind of a blessing that I didn't start younger because it probably would have got a lot worse. But I had my first drink at 18 and I was on a cruise and I was in Bermuda and the legal drinking age is 18 in international waters, 18-year-olds can have drinks on the cruise ship. My parents said it was okay. I used my own little key card to get a glass of wine. And about halfway through that first glass of wine, I started to feel a flutter. And then I felt so ashamed of myself. And I started thinking like, I'm a bad person. I'm a loser. I did something wrong here. And I, my brother and I would laugh about it for years, but it was really telling. And I started lecturing him like, promise me you'll never drink. (laughs) It's not worth it when I had only had half a glass of wine. And my understanding was always like adults have alcohol and it's just a tasty adult treat. And if you have too much, you get drunk, but only bad people get drunk because they can't control themselves. So I kind of had this weird belief that like moderate drinkers didn't have any effect at all. So I thought that like something was wrong with me that I was having an effect. It was a whole wow thing. Yeah, right. Well, it's interesting. You know, my brother, I've talked about it on this podcast over the years, but my brother's been sober like almost 13 years. And, you know, we both started drinking in high school, like 14, 15 years old. But it was interesting for us. We always say our parent, you know, my dad really was an alcoholic who just was able to stop, you know, but we didn't really know that because we never saw them drink. So we always kind of, you know, it's easy to blame somebody else. We always blamed it on them. Like, you know, we never saw you guys even moderately drink. Well, of course, now we know probably my dad couldn't moderately drink. So we never had an example of anyone that just like had a glass of wine and like stopped, you know, so we didn't even have that. Do you did your parents drink when you were growing up or people around you? I, so my family like 
barely drinks, they'll go out and they'll have like a drink. So I did observe a lot of people having like a drink and then moving on. Um, my dad didn't really drink very much, but my parents had a really bad marriage and my mom was drinking to cope with the marriage. So I observed um, like drinking to cope and then I observed like one drink when you go out, drink it over two hours. So I kind of saw both. And then I really believed the stigma from everything you see in the media that like only losers can't control themselves. It's so interesting to me, like, you know, in AA and stuff, you hear so many people, like, I feel like it's kind of the norm, have a response like their first drinking experience was they just fell in love with it. You know, they had this release and relaxation they had never felt and it like hooked them immediately. But you kind of had the opposite reaction. So I'm so interested to hear how that turned into alcoholic drinking. Yeah, that's a really good point. And because of that experience, I didn't drink again for basically four years. So I didn't drink in college. Like occasionally wow. when I was 21, I went out with some friends and had had like one drink. But I really just I thought like drinking is bad. It's not for me. I don't want to be like that. I'll never let that happen to me. Like those <laughs> kinds of things. Right. And then when I went to grad school, for biochemistry, everybody drank. All the professors drank with the students. There were parties in the school. They would get the ice luge thing that you pour the <laughs> shot down in the school. And coming from being really bullied throughout middle and high school, I had this panic like no one's going to like me if I'm the only one that doesn't drink. And I was totally secure with not drinking. I didn't care. I was going on dates and they drank and I didn't and I just didn't care. But I felt like no one would like me and they wouldn't invite me out anymore. So I started drinking and just ordering like what the next person would get. And it took maybe like two or three times. But the first time I got a real buzz on was when I had that experience. And I was like, this is literally the best thing ever. I understand why everyone does this now. This is my favorite thing. And then it was just, then I was doomed. <laughs> right. Wow. So how did, how did that turn into kind of, you know, what could be a common experience a lot of people have in college or in grad school where, you know, we drink a little too much of socialization. How did that turn into when you knew like you had a problem, like this maybe isn't normal? Yeah. So by the end of that first year, I was a daily drinker. So it progressed pretty quickly. And yeah. I learned from being in school that you drink when you're stressed and then it helps your stress. And I had a lot of stress. So like, why wouldn't I just drink every day? It made perfect sense. And I was in a PhD program that I left after the first year. And on my way out, the chair of the department told me, no one has any confidence that you will succeed. Meaning what? like all of the professors in the department that I looked up to and loved. And that that like ruined me. And I started drinking during the day. And I think that was like a big catalyst for my drinking. 
one wow. of the few in my 20s. But that was the first big catalyst where I started like drinking to cope with pain mm-hmm. and just trying to reduce feelings of overwhelm. And then I got engaged to my now husband. We moved in together and he grew up around a lot of heavy drinking. So he thought daily drinking was just what adults did. So I didn't have to hide my drinking. I didn't have to change it. He didn't comment on it. So it was really able to spiral pretty quickly from all of those factors. And it took till like the end of that second year of drinking when my tolerance had doubled and I was like getting drunk like most nights and like blacking out. And I was a teacher. So I was going to teach 30 kids hungover, which is some of the worst torture. And it was the, (sighs) it was the quantity that I was drinking that made me realize like, this is kind of a lot. And so then I'm like, okay, well, we'll just moderate. Like, let's just drink less and learn to control it. But it was about two years in that I realized like, this is, this is kind of a situation. What was your like quantity daily? If you don't mind me asking. So I would make these drinks. So I wasn't making very much money as a teacher as any teacher listening is probably like, yup. And my husband was still in grad school. So we had a very tiny budget. So I was buying vodka because before I was buying too much yellowtail wine to fit into our budget. So I would make these Cosmos in a pint glass and which I know Cosmos aren't served that way, but that is how I made mine. And like was, a beer pint glass? Yeah. Wow. But it was a Cosmo. It had the vodka <laughs> and the triple sec and the cranberry. Um, but it was like it was a it was a very large amount of vodka to scale it up to that level. And when I started realizing like this is a lot, I was having two of those a night. Wow. Yeah. And then I, you know, part of my trying to control it, I switched back to wine. I'm like, okay no liquor. That's a bad time. Like, so then I just drank a thousand glasses of wine Mm -hmm. instead, but that was my first way to try to control it was to switch what I was drinking. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm curious because you had, so, so, you know, you obviously are on this path, you know, this isn't working for you, but uh, it's fascinating because you have a science background. So it sounds like from your podcasts and your network and story that you had some big awakenings along the way that you that really were like aha moments of, okay, this is why I'm drinking. This is why I'm waking up at 3 a.m. with anxiety. What were some of those things that you kind of traced to yourself? Yeah, I use myself as a case study to try to understand addiction. And while I was drinking, I just blamed myself for all of my problems. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't possibly be the alcohol. Absolutely not. I'm the cause of my problems. I just have really bad mental health. I have all of these brand new problems. Never the wine. But when I stopped drinking, the problem started to go away. And I was like, huh, Maybe it was the wine because now I consistently like don't have anxiety all night. I don't I don't stay awake for four hours in the middle of the night. And when I stopped for good, 
I just wanted to know, like, was this really my fault? Am I really a bad person? Like little 18 year old me thought, like, did I actually let this happen? Um, Do I just have no self-control? Like all of that. I wanted to understand why me? Because I was observing my husband for years drink and party and then stop and switch to water. And then he'd wake up the next day and like move on with his life. And I could not do that. Like, was he better than me or was there something else going on? So that's why I started reading as much as I could and trying to learn about it. So how did you stop? I stopped because I was really suicidal Mm. from the drinking Um, which at the time I thought was completely unique to me. But now I realize like, no, actually tons of people feel that way at the end. Mm -hmm. But I thought that that was just a new problem. Like, oh, I'm just a suicidal person. Great. Added to my list of issues. And then it started to get pretty scary like all the, like I would get drunk probably a few, I was a daily drinker, but a few nights a week I would get like really serious about it. And those nights were the ones that I would like make myself stay up all night and think like, you're a loser. You're the worst. Why do you do this? What's wrong with you? You're a bad person. And after those thoughts would come like all the scary ones. And eventually I just got so desperate to not feel that way that I said like, okay, I am not going to drink for 90 days. And I thought like 30 is not long enough. After 90, I'm going to be cured. And then (laughs) I'm going to be able to drink moderately. I just need a break. You know, my tolerance is just too high, like all those things. Mm -hmm. And I took the break and I noticed that I didn't feel suicidal anymore. I wasn't forcing myself to stay up all night to think about how much I hated myself. Um, I didn't have anxiety anymore. Like a lot of my problems started to go away and I realized I don't have to feel that way. But naturally I was cured from the 90 days and I drank again And it was even worse because day 91 was my birthday. So when I realized that, I had not planned that at all. When I realized that I'm like, this is a sign from the universe that I'm on the right path and I'm going to fix this. So I started drinking again after all that. And I observed every single problem came right back into my life. And I couldn't excuse it anymore. I couldn't say like, it's just me or my husband sucks or it's just my job. And I couldn't make all these excuses because I knew that these things had gone away. And I drank and blew up my life and suffered for about six months. And then I started to feel scared again for my safety because of the suicidal thoughts. And I just accepted like, you can never change this. Like 10 years, 20 years, it will not be enough to change the way that you drink. And I just understood that like when I drink, I feel suicidal and that's just it. I can't unlink them. It is what it is. 
and I, I know this might be less common too. I ex- accepted forever. Like the moment that I decided to quit, I accepted like literally never again. Can you tell us a little bit about, cause like Sarah mentioned at the beginning, you didn't necessarily stop the common way with AA and the 12 steps. Cause you make it sound easy, which I know from experience, it is not easy. How were you able to go 90 days without that traditional support system? Like, did you just white knuckle it the whole time? Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, so the first time I ever took a break was two years before the 90 days when I was starting to wonder if I was an alcoholic or not. And I went to therapy and I was like, how do you know? How do you know if you're an alcoholic? And she's like, well, why don't you take a week off and we'll just see how it is. So I took the week off to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic. So I was highly motivated. And with the 90 days, I was really motivated to drink again. So it felt like Mm -hmm. something I had to do. I had no interest in sobriety. I was not trying to be sober. I didn't care about the benefits of sobriety. I just wanted to get to the 90s so then I could drink again and moderate because I was so sure that I was going to be cured. And I did white knuckle it. I was was a huge bitch the whole time. I was so cranky and I would – flip out over the tiniest things like breaking sunglasses I would that would just flip me out and I would go on a big rant and probably made everyone uncomfortable little things like that and I had no way to to deal with any kind of stress but I was so sure that I was going to be cured so I just I just did it and I isolated a lot and I was just angry for three months (laughs) It's almost like being able to drink, like the alcohol was your motivation for the time that you stopped drinking, which is, I mean, beyond ironic, but I mean, it really, it says a lot to how much we cling to our addiction, that we can have it in our lives. We'll do anything to keep it in there, to be normal so we can keep it. Yeah. Even not drink it for 90 days, if it means then I'll be able to drink it forever. Yeah. That's fascinating. All right, quick pause to thank a sponsor. David Rubin is an amazing family law attorney in Maryland. Now, he only handles cases in Maryland, by the way. MDLaws.com is the website. You can make a free consultation there. And with Rubin Law Firm, his son works there. He has multiple other lawyers as well. They do criminal, traffic defense, bankruptcy, auto accidents, personal injury, and wills and estate planning as well. Also, David is known specifically as a family lawyer who has been practicing for 30 years in Maryland with a specialty in handling narcissists and difficult divorces. If you're looking to deal with a narcissistic ex, you need to call David, 301 587-8900, or you can just make a free consultation right there on his website. Don't wait. One of the strongest things I've heard Natasha say is she wishes that she had met a David when she was going through her divorce with Kane. You want to get the best attorney that knows how to deal with your ex. So make that appointment, free consultation at mdlaws.com. I'm curious, Jill, like how did you, so you, did you ever go to AA or did you just decide I'm going to continue with therapy and then that's how you stopped drinking? 
therapy, yeah. I was scared to go to AA because someone might recognize me, which is so silly because like they're there for the same reason. But I was a teacher for, I had switched back and I was working in, in a lab in the last like five years of my drinking, but I was a teacher for five years before that. And I was like, what if one of my former students' parents is in there? And they're like, you were teaching my kid and drinking a thousand drinks every night. So is that like someone's going to see me thing that kept making me not want to go? I've tried some virtual ones, though. I Once quarantine happened mm-hmm. and things went online, I could try a virtual one with my camera off. And it finally got me to to try some type of peer support. Yeah, most people and Natasha, please jump in because I I have not I've been to many AA meetings. I actually really love going. I always say there needs to be, and I know there's like the Overeaters Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, Gambling Anonymous. I really want them to have one for just like Life Anonymous, you know, just because I'm like it's life is really hard. And I enjoy I mean, the 12 steps are amazing because they're really just about looking inward to, you know, everything, right? From what happened in our past to wrongs that we've done. And I mean, even if you're not an alcoholic, you've wronged somebody, you know, someone's wronged you, you know, um, whether it was intentional or not. But most people cannot do it without peer support. Did you see your therapist as peer support? Or did you just kind of being a scientist know that it was more of like, you know, scientifically what was going on and that kept you on track? Like, how did you stay accountable? That's a good question. I wouldn't start to get peer support until like eight months in when I started my podcast. And I was like, oh my God, there's a whole community of people that I just didn't know. I had no idea that sober people were online talking about it. Like I was in some Facebook groups, so I got a little bit there, but I just didn't know how big the community was until about eight months in. But in the beginning, uh, my therapist was my biggest supporter. I don't see her as peer support. Um, So that was a piece that was missing from my journey for a while. But she really helped me just understand myself better and understand how my perspective and the way that I handle emotions has contributed to a lot of the issues in my life. And I started realizing that like I have power over my own experience and I don't have to, I don't have to be like at the mercy of what everyone else is doing or, or how I think they might feel. I can just be in charge of myself and I learned how to calm down. And that was a big help for me. And then in So for my first year, I was pretty set on like, I don't want to die. Like, that's how I saw it. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to drink. But then as time goes on, you start to think like, maybe I went overboard with this silver thing or like, maybe it's been long enough and I can moderate and I've learned so much and I would never drink that way again. And that's when the peer support I think is really, really effective. And Mm. luckily I had made a lot of friends and was part of some communities and had that. But yeah, I don't think therapy necessarily would have been enough or I would have like reverted back into my dry drunkness from those 90 days before and just been like an angry, unpleasant 
person to be around. You mentioned that, um, you know, when you when you did your first podcast was kind of when you really got into the community. I'm curious because, like you said, you didn't want to go to meetings because you didn't want to be recognized or people to know. So did you just like do a 180 and jump right in and go, I'm going to put it on a podcast? I had been learning so much about addiction and it was helping me let go of like, I'm bad. I'm a loser. I did this to me. And I just ran, I'm very impulsive. (laughs) And I just randomly woke up one day and I was like, everybody needs to know this information. And I thought like, how can I tell these people that I don't know this information? And I was like, I could do a blog. Do people read them? I don't know. I could do a YouTube channel. I don't really want to be on video. That feels horrible. And I don't know how to edit anything. And then I'm like, I could do a podcast. I don't really know how to do that either. And eventually I settled on podcast. And then I just like, I Zoom called myself. I recorded it because I didn't know what else to do. And we were using Zoom for work. And then I just like put it out. And I kept it very, very secret from anyone that knew me. Like I did not post about it on my personal pages. I did not, for my sober pages, I did not put my name on it. I just had Jill. So even if you tried to look me up, if you're a coworker, you would never come across my sober pages. And do you hear that? That is the sound of the brand new and delicious You Natural Conception for her in their juicy strawberry gummy flavor. Oh my, this is now my favorite thing to take. It's a fertility aid. If you haven't heard about them, they are unbelievable with thousands of five-star reviews on Amazon. Go and read them for yourself. And they're famous for their conception for her and conception for him formula, which Schman, my hubby, has been taking for over a month because it takes two to tango. Conception for her fertility aid is a well-researched baby. They have ingredients like ashkawanda, zinc, magnesium that can help you on that journey to have a healthy baby. So what are you waiting for? Go and order now. You're going to love it, and I want to hear from you. Check out You Natural on Amazon and use code FRASER20 for 20% off Conception for Her, Conception for Him, and the Conception Bundle. That's EU Natural on Amazon, or follow the link on our website for 20% off Conception for Her, Conception for Him, and the Conception Bundle with the promo code Frasier 20. That's F-R-A-S-E-R. The number's two, zero. How ironic. I love this. Got a new podcast for you to listen to. Yes, I do. It's the Dr. John Delani Show. Schman and I were actually playing a clip from Dr. John's podcast because he was doing the topic of our youth travel sports ruining families. Well, Dr. John Delani has over 20 years of sitting with families and dealing with hurting people and mental health issues. He has a PhD in counseling. Delani walks alongside real people as they navigate tough decisions. And this is actually something that I really enjoy about his show. It's caller driven. I feel like I'm going to have to get a collar-driven show, Dr. John. I love this. Anyway, listen to the Dr. John Delani Show wherever you get your podcast, or you can follow the link in the description of this podcast episode. I always make it very, very easy to find my sponsors and people that I partner with. So start downloading and listening today to the Dr. John Delani Podcast. Enjoy. 
10 years ago, I lost 60 pounds mindful eating, and today I have kept the weight off. I never think about food. I never count calories. Honey, I don't even use one of those darn trackers or apps. I live with food freedom, and I want that for you if you are ready and you want it. And that's where My Optimal Body comes into play. Visit MyOptimalBody.com to request an appointment, and be sure to let them know that the Sarah Fraser Show sent you so you can qualify for a free personalized assessment plus a bonus free 30-day supply of their gut repair product when you sign up for a customized plan. That is myoptimalbody.com to request an appointment. Why I wanted to partner with Dr. Applin is because he is a doctor that gets to the cellular and gut reason of why you can't lose weight and keep it off. They also work with your mental capacity as well. So many of us are emotional eaters. They address that and their clients see long-term success. If you are ready to lose weight, keep it off, and you don't want to do crazy Ozempic, myoptimalbody.com and tell them the Sarah Fraser Show sent you. Want your life back? Order Hungry Root. It's actually as simple as that. Truly, Hungry Root is the best meal kit service I have ever worked with because they have meals that take 12 minutes. Guys, if you are a busy mom like I am, KJ now just started swim lessons. And on the night that he has swim lessons, we're not home until six. I'm trying to make dinner, trying to get him rested and down for bedtime. When I see that number 12, and I know in 12 minutes I can have a healthy meal, I'm turned on. All right. You will be too. Hungry Roots website, so easy to use as well. You just go, you can type in a type of cuisine or if you like chicken, or you can do preset where you tell them you're vegetarian, keto, or you're a meat lover. Right now, get 40% off. My listeners are getting 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash TSFS and get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash TSFS. Don't forget to use my link so they know who sent you and get 40% off right now and free veggies for life. Hero Breads. Oh my gosh. Chef's kiss. Do you love carbs? I'm obsessed. Give me a croissant. Give me a tortilla, baby, every day, slathered with some hummus. Yes, please. And then a lot of veggies, a little turkey burger in it. Okay. Um, That's my own proprietary sandwich. Thanks. (laughs) Hero Breads right now offering 10% off. Go to hero.co, enter the promo code TSFS. You are getting 10% off. Now, Hero Bread is so delicious and flavorful, soft, fluffy. In fact, so fluffy that KJ loves it, slathered with butter and cinnamon every day. They're known for their products to have zero to one grams of net carbs, zero sugar, and high in fiber. So what are you waiting for? Don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code TSFS at checkout. That's TSFS at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Yeah, I was really, really private. I was scared people would find out. As it started getting more attention, like I realized if you Google my name, it's just like 100% sober stuff, which people did eventually do. But I just felt, I felt that I needed to tell people what I was learning. And that overpowered this, like someone's going to recognize me thing. And I thought that I had protected it enough where people in real life wouldn't be able to discover it unless they were specifically looking for sober content. Um, But it was scary. And it was scary when people at work started to find it. And I felt like, and really vulnerable. And 
but it all turned out well, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, that also helps keep us sober by sharing our story. You know, I know that need you're talking about, about I just, I've had this enlightening, enlightening moment. Like I feel different than I've ever felt in my whole life. Everybody else needs to know this, or at least everybody else that's at the bottom of the pit that, you know, I was in before. And the the brilliance of of telling your story once you get past that that really big hump of fear of, oh my gosh, people are going to know this dark secret about me, is that it ends up freeing you even more. And like, you know, when I, I was terrified when I came out about my opioid addiction on the interview I did with Sarah, and I don't know, it's just... I'm it, I'm so happy about it now because it's like it was such a weight of I don't want anybody to ever know this about me because they're going to judge me and I'm a horrible person. And it's just like you free yourself. Did you feel that way once everybody eventually found out? It. I was scared and I was scared like this is going to impact my job. I felt this strong need to to prove myself as a good scientist and an intellectual before people found out because I didn't want I didn't want people to be like oh did you hear Jill's an alcoholic I wanted to already have like an opinion of me for my work before that started coming up so I was really scared and I felt like and people aren't gonna like me and I started slowly letting real life people know and everybody was so nice about it. And we always think people are going to care and judge so much more than they actually do. And it is freeing to just like be myself and not have to hide stuff. And even now as an entrepreneur, like I just started this week telling people in real life, like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I run a podcast network. Before, I would be like, I'd bypass the question of like, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I I teach and some like random vague thing. And now I'm finally owning it. And it feels good. And I know I'm also telling all these random people like, yeah, I have a sober show and it's great. Take that. And <laughs> It's fine. Like there's, I feel better. And that, that freeing feeling that you're describing, that's exactly how I feel. Wait, Jill, what have you found over the years in therapy? It's so fascinating you say that because for years, like the first three years I had a podcast, like I would not, I would never lead with that. I'd never say like, I have a podcast show in my own podcast business. I, I don't know why. I guess I, well, for one, I guess no one really knew what a podcast was. So I thought, oh, well, this is like an embarrassing business. This is like collecting cans and turning them in for money. <laughs> like, like, it was just like a weird, like people were like, where do you find a podcast? Well, over the years, what is that? Because it seems like listening to this interview, you you were very much a people pleaser and very worried about what other people think. And I think men feel this, but I feel like women, especially, we always worry what other people think. So how have you overcome that? Why in therapy, what did you discover why you were like that? Yeah. And I would do it double because then I'd be like, well, I don't want to tell people either because then I don't want them to think anything bad about my husband because he's married to me. So I do it extra. It's not just that they're going to judge me, but now it's going to like impact my husband if people find out. So I also felt this pressure to, to keep it quiet. Um, 
I think eventually I just learned like podcasts are cool and most people can't start a podcast. And if they do, most people who start one can't get that many people to listen to it either or make a good show. And the fact that we have done that is really freaking cool. And I don't know. I just felt like I could own it. I felt like people would view me as, oh, she's just trying to be an influencer. And, you know, a lot of people have opinions on that. But then eventually I realized like, no, I actually know what I'm talking about and I'm really successful. And it took a long time in therapy to build up my self-esteem and my self-worth. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what's linked into being open about what I do to just like I told the dentist two days ago, I was like, yeah, I run a podcast network and they were asking me so many questions. They thought it was the coolest thing, but I would never do that. And when I was working in biotech, like from what that professor said to me 10 years ago, I always felt not enough. I felt stupid. I felt like people would find out that I was stupid and that killed my self-worth and then add a bunch of drinking that you can't control on that. And I felt so badly about myself all the time. And it's really, sobriety has been a journey of of building up self-worth. And now I'm in a place where I'm just like, yeah, this is who I am. I think it's cool. If you don't, like you don't have to talk to me, but I'm going to go sell some more podcast ads and make <laughs> money sitting in my house, talking to friends and having a good time. And you can go do your thing and you don't have to like it. Good for you, Missy. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I, it took me like to be 40 until like I could really get the, like feel exactly like you feel. I just always felt, I don't know. Um, I wanted people to like me. Yeah. And now I'm finally at a place of like, I, I don't, and I'm actually in a genuine place of like, I don't care if you don't like, it's fine. You know what I mean? Before I used to value like how many people liked me or said online, like, mm-hmm. oh, I love you. Like, why, why do you, why do you need this? This is crazy. And, you know, people, and then what you find on social media, right, is people like you until you say something or post something that they disagree with. And then it's, I'm so disappointed in you. I never thought you were like this. I Shame have to, on you. I have to unfollow you. Yep. And so I, I I would be like crushed by that. And now I'm like, I get it. Go on. Unfo- I told, I unfollow <laughs> people now every day. So I'm like, you know what? Good for you. I don't blame you. If you don't like, no problem. But it takes a long time, doesn't it? We're not, I don't know why we aren't like taught that, you know, and maybe kids are being taught that. I think as women too, it just, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us, whether that's the way we're raised by our parents or societal influences. I I don't know, but it's, it seems like such a common denominator and all the women we talk to, Sarah, and, you know, everything that Jill's saying that. We, we have this low self-esteem. We're not sure of ourselves. We have imposter syndrome, you know, worried that people are going to find out I'm stupid or I'm this or I'm that. And I, I think when we get to be 40, we've had enough life experience where we're just like, you know what? I'm pretty fucking amazing and I'm happy with who I am. And I finally just don't care anymore. Maybe we're just tired. I don't know. But I feel like you begin to, please jump in ladies, but I feel like when you're 40 and, and Jill, I know you're not there yet, but like, I think you begin to figure out like how life works, which means, which is like, 
you usually have a few very, very close friends in your life. You you have a circle of acquaintances who are people that, you know, probably will help you if you need help, but they'll also disappoint you, you know, because you have this really small group of people that are your hardcores. And then beyond that, like, like you said, Jill, a lot of times you think that people care and they really, they're all caught up in their own shit. They never even think about you. And, and it's not a negative. It's just like, this is how human nature is. People have their own problems. So it's like, fuck, just put, do what you want because most of the time these other people aren't even thinking about you, you know? I'm working on it. I f- I'm like, I'm super confident and super insecure at the same exact time. Oh, yeah. We all are. We all are. Especially in business, I really want people to like me really bad. Um, You'll get over that, too. (laughs) I need to get over it. I need to get over it so bad because it's the worst. And I worry. Like, I'll send an email or have a conversation with someone and, and be direct and provide feedback. And I know I have to do it. And the whole time I'm like, they're going to not like me. And I force myself to do it anyways. But it's it's so hard. It is so hard to like live your life hoping that everyone's going to like you. And then and we don't even know. Like, I'm just assuming that they're not. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, I feel that way about our podcast, Sarah. Like, it's like. Ooh, do people actually like this? You know, are they are they laughing? Are they is anybody even listening? And is, is that, anyone out there? I know it's such an isolating thing because you know you're talking to a bunch of people, but you're also, like you said, sitting in your living room in you know, sweatpants on the bottom half, half <laughs> a nice top on the top half, and just like talking random thoughts, but it is very validating though when when you do find out not just that people are listening, but that you've made a difference in someone's life, which I can only imagine with your network of shows that that must happen to you all the time, right? That you hear from people that this has made a, a real life difference. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, I got a special review a couple of days ago from someone that doesn't struggle with alcohol, but their mother did. And they said, they said like one of the biggest compliments I've ever received that like listening to my show felt equivalent to 10 years of therapy. But, and I was like, wow, that, thank you. But then they said that through listening to my show, it helped them find compassion for Mm. people that struggle and realize and like let go of the anger and resentment about their childhood and and the drinking that they witnessed and see it from a different perspective. And it's just like, wow, that, that I could help even in a little minor way, get someone to that point where they could let go of the anger and resentment and start to find grace for someone else. Like it's, it's so special, but then you get that one troll review and it ruins it all. (laughs) How many shows do you have now in your network? Uh, so my show and then six other shows. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Is it all women? Nope. It's a, it's like a 50-50 split, actually. Yeah, you have some incredible shows, um, which we will talk about. I wanted to ask you just two other questions around drinking. So after all these years, you've been sober how many years? Three years. So I quit November 2019. 
oh wait, did I freeze? <laughs> she's just shocked at what you said. Oh no. Oh, it's oh, okay. No, we can sorry. edit it together once she's back. Okay. Sorry, Jill. We oh. hear you. We don't see you, but we hear you, but we can oh. splice it in. Oh, you're back. Hey. Am I back? All right. Yeah. Um, Jill, she so said many- you've been sober three years or never mind. You just ask her again, Sarah. Sorry. Yeah. Jill, how many years have you been sober? Three years. So I got sober in November, 2019. And right around COVID. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Right before, thankfully. Mm. And with your re- years of research, why do people drink? I've always heard that it's a gene, that basically you're kind of predisposed to a gene um, where it's very hard to turn off alcohol. Is that what you've discovered too? So it's not one gene. It's a collection of genes and each one will make you more or less vulnerable. So mm. probably the easiest one to understand is just the way that the body processes alcohol. Like, why do some people become daily drinkers and other people become binge drinkers and go on benders, but then they take time off? And that's partly because of how they process alcohol. I unfortunately process alcohol really well, so I can recover quickly and then get right back to it. And other people, like my husband, for example, he feels tired when he drinks and gets a headache. So he's less likely to drink. Um, And like some people will get two-day hangovers. I've never had one of those. So just the way that you process alcohol influences how often you can drink. So that's a big part of it. But then any kind of mental health struggle makes you more vulnerable. Um, Trauma changes the brain and it can make alcohol and drugs feel more pleasurable. So it's more rewarding for us. So then you're more likely to do it. So it's all of these different genes that just increase your risk of alcohol working really well for you. And then I think on the emotional side too, it's like a lack of coping skills and not knowing how to deal with anything and not knowing even like what emotions are. So for me, I would just be overwhelmed all the time. I was overwhelmed or I was angry and I didn't know why. I didn't know like what feelings were below the overwhelm. So how can I deal with it if I don't even know what I'm feeling? So, and I knew alcohol would bring the overwhelm down. So then I would feel more calm and I could, I felt like I could handle things better So a lack of coping skills, you're not able to take stressors off your plate. So they just build and build and build and build all day and you don't know how to relieve any of it. So I think learning those skills as a kid obviously sets you up for success, but if you didn't learn them as a kid, learning them from a therapist or from podcasts or books or peer support just learning how to deal with stuff makes it more likely that you're going to be successful. And that's why when I did my 90 days, I was just angry and miserable the entire time because I was just white knuckling it and just, I'm not going to drink, but I'll eventually drink and everybody must deal with me for 90 days. Right. Instead of like getting to the emotional root of exactly yeah, what was going on. Um, I also, how has it been, did your husband stop drinking when, when you did, or does your husband, how, how does that work? 
Yeah, my husband is one of those people that can have like half a beer and then yeah. like leave it behind, which I think is so weird. He can drink a lot if he wants. He can decide to have none if he has something to do in the morning. And all of that is just so weird to me. But he has backed off a lot. He used to drink a lot more with me, obviously, because I was doing it daily. But he does still drink. We talked about like the best ways that he could support me when I stopped. And my big ask for him was like, never drink wine around me ever. And even though he really liked wine, I knew he didn't like it nearly as much as I did. So I had no problem making that request. And that helps me a lot because when he drinks a beer or he drinks a mixed drink, like I might feel like, oh, I wish, I wish I could do that. But it's not like wine. Like I would really romanticize wine. So hmm. he's found ways to help me, but also hasn't stopped completely. So, but it, it works for us and he's really respectful about it. Oh, okay. I have like two more questions. I <laughs> But is it hard? You know, I think one of the things that's very honest about your podcast that I've listened to is you do talk about you kind of always walk this fine line of relapsing. You you give an example on your podcast. You went to a podcasting convention. iHeartRadio was throwing you guys a big, you know, party and you were really worried about drinking again because there was an open bar. Do you feel like now you have a sobered powered net how now our network? You know, do you feel like even more pressure to stay sober? I mean, that's that's very brave. Do you worry about that? Yeah, I think starting the podcast, my own, and then even more so starting the network, those are very powerful forms of accountability. Even when I have weird thoughts like, one won't hurt, or like maybe someday, like all those stupid weird thoughts that I know aren't true. I also know that I put out a podcast episode about sobriety every week. And I would absolutely never do that if I were drinking. Like I wouldn't try to hide it and like maintain the sober podcast. I just wouldn't be able to do that. So it makes me think, the podcast makes me think twice. And then I have a lot of sober friends that I know care about me. So then I think about it a third time. And then now I have a network of shows that I'm responsible for. So then I think about it a fourth time. <laughs> so I have like a lot of barriers of protection between the weird thoughts and the open bar situations and then like actually doing it. The hardest thing for me though with traveling has not been the open bar. It's been when you're at the hotel and you're mm -hmm. trying to get like a coffee or like an ice cream at the end of the night and in the line, there are those fridges and they have like half bottles of wine or cans of wine or or like single drinks. And I know I could just like grab one and it would be totally normal and then go up to my room because I loved to drink alone. I wouldn't want to drink in public. I would want to drink by myself if I was really going to do it. So it's those thoughts like no one would know you're in LA by yourself. No one would know if you brought that to your room. So I think those are the thoughts that are harder for me. And then I'm just like, 
No, I have my podcast. No, I have friends that really care about me. I, I'm going to have to look at my therapist in her face and tell her, and I don't want to have that conversation. And I have this network and like, there's so much that's dependent on my sobriety that even when I think those thoughts, like, I'm just like, sorry, man, you just freaking can't. Okay. You just can't get some chocolate and be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean, it's, it's not one of the things I love. I remember who told me it was like, there's no cure mm-hmm. in recovery. You know, I'm never going to be able to, you know, like take medications that, you know, make me feel good or whatever in moderation. I'm never going to be able to control myself and do that like everybody else does if they have an injury or whatever and they can get a bottle of Percocet. I can never do that. And that was like, it's not a one time thing, I feel like, of accepting that. Like, I have to oh, remind yeah. myself all the time. This is a deal breaker for good. Like you just aren't able, which is kind of sad thinking that way. Like, okay, it's for forever. But I feel like I just, it's so important to just accept that, that this is it. Well, this is just me. You know, look, it's, it's, who wants to go back? You know, I mean, again, it's easy for me to say that because I don't have that predisposition, but I mean, you both have been so honest about your stories and hearing my brother, it's like, being an alcoholic, being addicted to something, it never, it's never working. It's, it's like awful. It's never working. It's like complete chaos. So it's, but I get that you always kind of are on that line of, you know, well, it's rationalization. Like you always, it's very easy to romanticize it. Like when I'm having those thoughts, it's not, oh my gosh, remember the hell when you were like going doctor shopping and scrounging to like find some, you don't think about that. You think about, Remember that like warm, fuzzy feeling you felt and being able to like, I would love to lay in bed and watch TV and eat, you know, for some reason it was caramel covered apples. I don't know. But that was like my thing was watching TV and eating those apples and being high as a kite. And like, that's what you think of. You don't think about the consequences when you're romanticizing it. But hopefully if you've had, if you've done the work and you have a good network, everything like Jill said, she has the thoughts about, I have a network, I have friends. Like you, those are the thoughts that hopefully come next if you've done the work to stop you. But yeah. no, it's hard to remember the bad. It's a lot easier to remember. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The reason you liked it <laughs> and why it helps and how it might it might change this time. You never know. Mm-hmm. You've tried two thousand times, but two thousand and one might be. Different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's hard for me too. Jill, sober powered. You also. Do you offer like courses or do you offer like a group that people can kind of subscribe to? Yeah. So I have a peer support group. Um, so it's a private community and we we do meetings a couple times a week. And then I have a couple courses. So I have one that is about mindset around why we think alcohol helps. So I think one of my favorite parts of it is I talk about like this desire to take the edge off of life and how you don't actually have to live a life that has a permanent edge on it at all times. So just trying to like reframe the way people think about it. And then I have a emotional sobriety one as well. Um, I know people give you a hard time about that because, <laughs> you know, I, yes. I'm curious how you, you handle it, right? I, I give you credit because 
everybody does things different. Every something resonates differently with everyone. But you know, there is a big thing in the AANA community. I mean, it's free, it's anonymous. They want to keep it that way. Um, why did you decide to start something that was paid? And how do you handle the backlash of people who say you shouldn't be doing this? Yeah, there are so many people that would love to tell me all about how I'm a bad person for putting a price tag on it. I'm trying to profit off of people that are dying. I've been called a scumbag. I actually had um, a group of anonymous people take my picture and alter it. What? And it was it was very scary. They took my picture. They changed my eyebrows to be like, um, like going down and like crazy looking. And then they took one of my covers for my reels where I was like pointing at some text and they changed it to like, I'm going to kill you. Like the, and they were sending me these things all because I had like a $20 membership. And what? I mean, yeah. rehab isn't free. Rehab charges. What, like, what's the difference? Therapy's not free. Your therapist charges you. Yeah. And I know. So there's this really weird opinion. And it's hard because I my podcast is free to listen to. I have a couple different free ebooks. I do a lot of different free videos on Instagram and YouTube. Um, all my interview conversations are free. I'm forgetting some things probably, but I have like a ton of free resources, like more than most. And when I do price something, I price it low to keep it affordable. But what I've found is just that the community, I used to have a free Facebook group and people would come in there to try to sell stuff and people would come in there to try to poach my members or people would have like a day one and they'd come in to get like some pep talks from people and then they'd disappear and then they'd come back. So they weren't doing any peer supporting as soon as I made my membership community, the the freaking vibe in there is it's the nicest group of people I've ever met. Like every time we have a meeting, we're all crying and like supporting each other. They call each other like everybody is just so nice. And it just makes it different. And I think it's unfortunate that there's this belief that I should do my work for free but I'm really grateful to my members because they allow me to do sober stuff full time. If I couldn't like support myself doing this work, it would all go away and I would have to go get a full time job. And I make I work like 75, 80 hours a week, seven days a week right now. And I make about half of what I made in biotech working 40 hours, but it's worth it to me. And, and people think that we're just like collecting all of this money and like living our best life. And it's not about that. It's about now I'm so grateful that I can do 80 hours of sober stuff a week and like help all the shows in my network grow and help more people. And I wish that they could see it that way instead of seeing that, that I'm preying on people that are dying and like trying to, um, I forget the other phrase that they use a lot, but just putting a price tag on sobriety and and 
for people that can't afford it or don't want to pay, there's AA, there's Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety. Like there's so many free things. There's Absolutely. there's something for everyone. A-A-N-A-O-A. I mean, terrific resource. You know, great places to go. People um, are so judgmental. People are so entitled, you know, and quick that to throw judgment. Sarah and I get that a lot, you know, like, oh, you guys are banking over stuff. And it's like, one, you don't make money in podcast. Uh-oh. Hold on. Oh, I lost you guys. Oh, I can see you fine. I know. We see you. We, yeah. Oh, <laughs> there like, we go. My phone rang and it disappeared. Okay. Well, I guess it was still recording. Yay. But anyway, yeah, Sarah and I get a lot of shit over. One, we're not making any money, but it's like, why not? Why can I not get paid so I can continue to do this? Like, I'm not independently wealthy that I can just do this all day for free. And why are you so (laughs) entitled that you think I should do that for you? Do you you do your job for free? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, Natasha and I, our, our backstory is, you know, Kane, who was her ex-husband and I worked with for years, radio personality. And, you know, we've just had this amazing reconnection through his life and passing. Uh, but yeah, we get that same thing. People message us and say, you guys are scumbags for uh, profiting off his death. And it's like, all these experiences happened to us. Natasha was genuinely married to him. Like, you don't think she has the right to tell her story? You don't think, I worked with him for six years. You don't think I have the right to discuss what happened? I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. They are very, some people are very entitled to tell you what they think you should be doing. Yeah, someone told me, you disgust me. And oh, like, that. <laughs> I get- I get such bad comments like that and they don't realize how hurtful it is. Like we're real people with actual feelings and we're just trying to help others while also being able to pay our bills. Like I, Mm -hmm. I rent, my husband and I would love to rent a place that's a bit nicer. We're not even trying to like buy a big giant mansion. We would just love to get a slightly nicer place. And I can't do that if I'm, working 80 hours a week for free. Yeah. yeah. We we yeah. feel you. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. I mean, that, we have nothing more to say because we totally get it. But you know, I try to when when we, one, I try to avoid seeing some of that nastiness, which, you know, sometimes is unavoidable because people will send it right to you. But then I always try to end whatever, you know, my session on Instagram or going through my DMs or emails with, one of the positives comments, you know, they they so outweigh it and try to remember like, okay, I know my intention for doing this. I know I'm making a difference and haters going to hate. Yeah. And you get better, unfortunately, at dealing with it with a lot of exposure. So now I don't feel compelled to go back and forth with these people. I'm just oh, you like, can't. Yeah, I never even respond now. It's like, mm -mm. you know, I mean, occasionally we do, but it's, it's, uh, that's the joys too of hitting 40. I don't even care. You should see my TikTok. Like not one person likes me and I love it. I post (laughs) every day. It doesn't deter me. People that say the same thing, you're profiting off talking about reality shows. Your point. (laughs) They're making money. money. The network is making money. Their managers are making money. Okay. You're like, I don't even care anymore. I'm like, great, terrific. I'll, I have more videos coming tomorrow. <laughs> you don't have to watch. Um, look, people need to check out Sobered Power is your podcast. Your network is Sober Powered Media. I thought maybe you could tell us Emotional Badass is a very popular show. If you could tell us maybe about that. And then I, I can't wait to talk more about this, Moving Past Murder um, with Collier Laundry. 
who's uh, sadly he watched his dad murder his mother in front of him um, and just, you know, talks about the downsides clearly of, you know, murder and surviving it. But you have some very deep shows. Maybe you could touch on a couple. Yeah. My network is filled with some seriously cool people. Um, Yeah. Emotional badass. I love Nikki. She's a therapist and she talks all about like highly sensitive people and trauma and narcissism, managing your emotions. Her show has helped me a lot. That's how I met her because I reached out and was like, I love your show so much. Can I interview you? And that's how we met. Um, Collier, his story is so inspiring and he's just trying to do so much good in the world. But my other shows, I have this really cool show, Real Talk Recovery, where it's two brothers and they co-host and they're both therapists and it's a call-in show and they help people on the air that are struggling with betrayal trauma, sex addiction, porn addiction, wow, things like that. And then they share their story to help others. And um, I think their show is amazing. I have other shows about sobriety. I have the Hello Someday podcast, which is specifically for successful career-driven women who love to drink alone. And they can say, like, it's not that bad. I'm functioning just fine. I'm not hurting anyone but myself. Um, I have the addicted mind who interviews a lot of really cool people in the addiction space. Like he has a lot of doctors on and therapists and he talks about different kinds of treatment methods for addiction. And then I have a new show called One for the Road, which is hosted by Sober Dave on Instagram. And he's just so nice and he gets the same hate as we're getting, I think, because his audience is so large. And it's I hate it more for him than for me because he's such a nice person. Like for Dry January, he goes live every single day for free for an hour every day for 31 days. He makes chat groups like to support people for free. Like he's such a kind kind person. So I'm always looking to get more interesting shows by, I love therapists, obviously, because I have so many therapists, but also people like Collier that have been through it. And um, it's just fun. It's fun to meet them all. It's fun to connect them all with each other and then have them become friends. And we do a mastermind every month where we help each other out with our either podcast growth or businesses or whatever we're doing. So it's, it's important to connect with other podcasters. It's a very isolating thing to do. (laughs) It is an isolating business. You're in your room all day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Jill Teets. Thank you so much for being Uh, on with us. I, I just, I love, I think Natasha and I feel the same way about just doing, bringing different people's stories, different things that work. And I think, you know, you're not the traditional way of getting sober, but this will resonate with people and it does. Absolutely. No, thank you for your time. And thank you for what what you do, what you're doing. It's it's inspirational, to be honest. Thank you both.